I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, This is Trade Guy Bill with a special broadcast, also with Trade Guy Scott, and a special guest, uh, Raymond Chrétien, who is a longtime uh, Canadian uh, ambassador, senior diplomat, and government official who's joining us specifically to talk about U.S.-Canada issues. Ambassador Chrétien has spent most of his career serving the people of Canada in the government, alternating really between various ambassadorships and senior positions in the Canadian government in Ottawa. He was ambassador to Zaire. He was ambassador to Mexico. He was ambassador to Belgium and Luxembourg, to the United States during just about all of the Clinton administration. And he ended his ambassadorial career as ambassador to France. So I was intrigued that you've, as far as North America is concerned, you've accomplished the trifecta. You're a Canadian. You've been ambassador here and ambassador to Mexico. I won't ask you which place you prefer. But one of the things that we'll be talking about or what mostly be talking about is is trade because that's what we do here. I have a great affection for Canada and always have is our listeners know my mother was Canadian, not from Quebec. I'm sorry. (laughs) She was from uh, Ontario, London, but I spent my summers in Canada and we've traveled in Canada. In fact, my last two family vacations were in Quebec. So I have great affection for the, the country and that part of the country in particular. And, you know, this is a country, longest undefended border in the world, great diplomatic, great political, great military relations. Yet we seem to have a lot of trouble getting the trade issues right. No matter what goes on, we seem to have a variety of trade issues that have divided us rather uh, occasionally bitterly over the years. I hope always with good humor, but has divided us. So we'll pro- we'll turn to some of them. As I told the ambassador, uh, lumber and dairy, where we think Canada is clearly wrong, and automobiles, where we acknowledge the United States is clearly wrong. We can talk about those, but there's other bigger issues, too, going on on supply chains and supply chain resilience and how Canada and the United States can better cooperate and not just talk about cooperating, because there's a lot of that going on, but uh, actually do things that enable us to both build more resilient supply chains. But let's begin with sort of the the basic question. Why are you in Washington? Uh, What are you doing here? Uh, very briefly, uh, I'm here uh, because of panel tomorrow on, on lumber and also to discuss more generally with uh, some of our friends here the lumber issue, where it stands and where it's going in, in the months and, and, and years to come. So we had a couple of good meetings today, and I can tell you this is going to happen probably this year, but we can use that to be prepared because when the moment comes, uh, we usually uh, try to get our act together even earlier than the Americans can. So. I was appointed in 2017 by a previous uh, premier of Quebec, Mr. Couillard. The present government reiterated their, their desire to keep me al- along. So that's what I do. And I advise the government on what to do vis-a-vis the Americans and vis-a-vis other provinces in Canada. Because the problem for us is, is all, not only a trade policy issue, it's a federal provincial issue because it's very controversial in Canada when it comes to dividing the quotas between provinces. 
Tell us, can you bring uh, for our, our listeners, we haven't talked about lumber before on the podcast. I don't think, Scott. Can you bring us up to date? What is the panel deciding tomorrow and uh, where are we in the process? Uh, where we, In the process is that there has not been a, a negotiation for, for years. Lumber has been, as you know, kept outside uh, of the NAFTA 1, NAFTA 2. So it's a separate uh, negotiation. Where we are is that we still have those quotas, those tariffs against our exports. They're $800 billion stuck at the border. And we have to come to an agreement because more or less, I mean, North America is getting shorter of lumber. And, and because of this, the Europeans are coming in more and more importantly. 8%, 8 to 10% of the present market belongs to countries like Germany and Sweden. So we want to make sure that we keep our share of the market. So we'll see how it's going to go. But the, it's going to be ultimately a quota issue at the end. We have to divide a certain part of the, of the market that is assigned to Canada. So is the panel a USMCA dispute settlement panel, no. or is it a Commerce Department no, anti-dumping panel? USMCA panel. Ah, okay. With panelists on, uh, assigned by both countries. And obviously, we will uh, wait for the, the results of that panel before deciding where to go and, and when to go. Normally, Canada has been happy to, to win most of those panels. I cannot tell you what will happen tomorrow, but essentially we have a, a delegation that will attend those discussions. I will not be there, but I mean, it's going to be part of the of our decision and when, making. When do you, and when do you expect a decision from the panel? Later this year, five, six months. Oh, that long. So this is sort of a, a relatively early stage, but you requested it a year ago, right? Yes, but it's usually, it usually takes quite a lot of time for those panels, all, all of them normally, uh, months. All right. We Canadians feel that we, we have to wait for those results to back up our, our position when we sit down with the, with the U.S. side. So I recall, you know, we had a ceasefire on this, didn't we, for about for 15 while, years? For a while, yeah. Uh, what happened? Ceasefire that was uh, broken by, uh, by the Americans. By the right? Americans, yeah. Why? Why? Because of they, they felt there was too much lumber coming from uh, from from Canada uh, without the, any penalty being put on it. So there came a time when the, it was decided by both parties that we cannot let this go totally free. It should be free trade actually, but it is not. So for I would say what Patrick, 50 ans, 60 ans, the lumber six lumber, 40 years. It has been an issue of, of controversy. <laughs> Yes, it, it certainly precedes both the NAFTA and the U.S.-Canada yes. Free Trade Agreement. Oh, yes. Ambassador, could you talk a little bit about the provincial-federal issue? Because, of course, we have that all the time. Our states created the federal government here, and lots of conflict. But how does it work out in Canada? It, not, it's not an easy issue. I'm glad you were asking that, that question, because uh, when I told you at the beginning that it's not only a trade policy issue between our two countries, it's a federal-provincial issue for the reason that when it, the time comes to split the pie between provinces, then of course, there's a tremendous battle about what share you should get. And also remember the provinces are not equally producing of lumber. British Columbia has been traditionally the most important one, followed by Ontario and Quebec. Now it's changing, but I mean, so it's very difficult when you represent Canada to try to balance the interests of all provinces, especially British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, very important. Of course, uh, I represent Quebec on this issue. Uh, so. Ultimately, that decision belongs to the political level. The only time that our, when our premiers, even the prime minister of Canada gets involved, it's when it, it's time to approve the final quota between provinces. I see. For instance, we Quebec would like to have a 6% share of the market. British Columbia has traditionally obtained maybe 18%. 
three times the same amount. I suspect that next time when we sit down, it'll be it'll be same difficulty. Very political because lumber represents more than 100,000 jobs in Canada. In Quebec, it's six, it's 60,000 jobs just just in Quebec. Sure. And now, Canada, I mean, Quebec is burning. You, you have seen, I'm sure you have seen the, 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 the multiplicity of fires. Not only Quebec, British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, Nova Scotia are, are burning as we speak. I, I just noticed on, on television that the number of fires in Quebec has even increased today. So this will have an impact also on the lumber file. I mean, obviously, uh, to make sure that there's still uh, an, enough lumber to go around. Sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you. So that's that's the federal provincial part of, of this issue. But I have to say something here about Quebec, because I, I, Quebec is, is one key province of Canada. Maybe your, your audience is not aware of the federal provincial role in decision making. I mean, we... We have uh, here Quebec with a number of offices around uh, around the U.S. Uh, really pushing these days, not only for lumber, but for two issues critical to the U.S., uh, critical minerals and electric batteries, electric cars. Two issues of great interest to you, of great interest to us. So on those two issues, obviously, the provinces play a key, key role in Canada in deciding what to accept from you guys and what we, what we don't like. Let's, let's pursue that last point for a minute. In preparing for this, I, we were reading some Canadian publications, and I got kind of, I'm confused with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act and its provisions on its subsidies and its mineral provisions. Is this good for Canada or is it not good for Canada? I get conflicting reports. Yeah, li- yeah, listen, when it, it came in, into effect, created a lot of uh, uncertainty and worry, certainly in, not only in Canada, in, in the rest of the world as well. Hmm. Well, we know about the rest of the world. I've heard from the Europeans yeah, and, and, and the Koreans and Japanese a lot, but we haven't heard much from Canada. So you're going to, but on uh, minerals, isn't Canada going to be the big winner? Because you've got so many minerals. We've got a lot of minerals, yes, but we have to make sure that, first of all, that, that not only we, we, we extract them, but we have to, trans- I mean, the Americans would like to come and, and get them and, and take them here and transform them. Obviously, certainly in the case of Quebec, but the rest of the country also involved is to not only extract, but transform in Canada. In Quebec, our premier is highly interested in this issue. Mm-hmm. Quebec, as you know, is not only... Uh, full of uh, critical minerals, but also full of, of, of water. Yes. We, we, we should discuss water at some stage because I suspect that in five or 10 years, it'll be a, it'll be a critical issue. No, it's an important government. source of green energy. Yeah. So uh, for the moment, we're watching it. Personally, I thought as a, as a former ambassador here that it, it was a tremendous success for the Biden administration to have got this through. I mean, it's a, it's a usually important, but I mean, the rest, of, the rest of the world is adapting. We have a lot of companies in Canada now trying to th- maybe thinking of moving here. Uh, just to, to benefit from the subsidies of the uh, of this act. So will they? Uh, some lumber companies have already done it. So it, it has had an effect on, on our industry. This has been the European complaint uh, about it. Uh, initially, their complaint was that it was that it was protectionist. And I think what they then realized is the car companies, in, in Europe anyway, they are doing what companies do, which is not to wait for the government to pull out a miracle, but they're going ahead to try to to solve the problem on their own. And so they were proceeding down the the road of figuring out how to adjust their supply chains to accommodate the U.S. law. At that point, it dawned on the Europeans really last October, I would say, that the real issue is what you referred to for them, which is the size of subsidy and the incentive it will create for companies to To come here. Or or to how to neutralize their coming to the U.S. and keeping them in Canada. We have had a a good example recently with Volkswagen Mm -hmm. deciding to build a huge company in Ontario on electric batteries. I mean, this is going to be like a small country. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of land, tremendous amount of people. The government subsidizes or give them uh, billions of dollars, $10 billion, I think, for just for that investment near Toronto, not far from Toronto. So and, th- and they're, they're just, going ahead with that. They're going ahead with that, yeah. 
And there are others coming around and saying, listen, uh, if you're not doing this, we're going to go down south. So our government is, is forced to do the same, you know, provide subsidies to new players. So it's, it was a controversial issue in Canada, but people understand that to keep thousands of jobs for years to come, it's, it's worth the investment. You're not saying it was a bad thing to do. No, 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 no. It's not a bad thing to do, but it's a, still a tremendous uh, subsidy. And subsidies are not always popular. And they don't always work out as well as they you think they will. That's it. Yeah. Because of the contrary effects. So I've, I've worked as an ex- operating executive in Canada for three years. And so very familiar with the business environment which is quite positive. But also, it strikes me that we have this huge trading relationship. If you think of it as a bell curve, the great middle of that curve is beneficial to both sides and largely trouble-free. And we completely take it for granted. <laughs> okay. And then we have the two tails. We have the tail of the old issues, which you mentioned softwood lumber. Some of the supply management agriculture issues are way older than, they're older than any of these free trade agreements by far. And then we have the other tail are the new issues, the digital economy, and the things where there's there's an sort of ongoing learning by both countries and some tension in terms of how you set priorities in the digital economy. So can you talk about how we manage the tails better, in your view, having been ambassador here? Lumber is certainly maybe the oldest of, of them all. I've mentioned right. earlier that how we have decided to try to run it separately from the NAFTA process. Right. New issues... Uh, there are more and more discussions about about the the, the new issues about digital trade, right. about artificial intelligence, and about what the two countries did, did during the COVID crisis. I mean, this is the, it was certainly a new issue. Dialogue is maintained on old and and new issues. In Washington, we have always had a, a strong trade policy component dealing with sure. all issues of interest to you and and to us. So I've participated in many meetings where your side doesn't hesitate to put on the table old and new. So these are some of the new issues. Fair enough. They are old. I recall my first encounter with lumber was in 19, oh, I don't know, 85 or so when I was working on Congress, when I was lobbied by Charlene Barshevsky, who went on to become uh, Clinton's U.S. trade representative. But at the time, she was representing, I forget which side she was representing, your side, I think. uh, I dealt with both Charlene and Nikki Cantor before her. So uh, I remember the the last uh, hours of the 1996 uh, lumber tree issue. Mickey Cantor was USTR, and he was replaced by by Charlene, who went into a law firm. Yes. Uh, well, Ambassador Barshevsky, before she was the trade ambassador, actually did represent Canada. She, I think that came up at her confirmation hearing. People were like questioning her loyalty or something like that. It's Canada. It's okay. <laughs> no, but <laughs> o- overall, uh, I would say these days, today, uh, as we speak, the trade relationship is is not in bad shape. I mean, we, we, have, the, we have those irritants. We have always had irritants. I mean, we Mentioned dairy, uh, lumber, the border sometimes, uh, immigration now. I mean, the Mexicans coming into the U.S. from the from the northern border. But overall, I mean, it's still more than $2 billion a day without serious problems. So it, for us, it's 80, what, close to 80% of our exports. When I was here, it was 87 when I left in 2000. So it's still very high. Say a word about immigration. Is, is it a problem across the northern border? Yes, it is a problem because we, it's related to the problem that we had in, in accepting in, in Canada refugees crossing the border at non-official transit points. I mean, there was a there was a, a road, Rock, Roxham Road. Oh, this where, is the one in New York, in New York yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, where hundreds and thousands of illegal immigrants were, were coming outside the normal channels. And then, then the, the pressure on 
certainly in Quebec, became very strong. And the pressure was put on Mr. Trudeau, who, who made a deal to abolish the agreement between Canada and the U.S. So in order to close the possibility of those refugees to access Canada through non-formal checkpoints. At the moment, mm -hmm. they have to go to a normal checkpoint. They cannot go through, uh, through the forests. Uh, and right. this has resulted in, in a lot of people flying into Canada, Mexicans, who can come into Canada without a visa, and then just walking uh, across the border. So I suspect that the migration issue, which has been huge for your country for years, is becoming it's a huge problem for the, for, for the whole planet. But even for a country like Canada, we have only 40 million people, but I suspect that the, the pressure is on. I mean, we're, we're talking about thinking 500,000 new immigrants every year. So imagine, mm -hmm. I mean, transform this into numbers for the US. So it, it's changing the, the whole pattern of, of, of our country, the whole demography of our country, the whole economy of our country. And it's, it's becoming an issue between our between Canada and the U.S. because if, if mm -hmm. nothing had been done, the pressure would have, would have become un unbearable. Yeah. 500,000 uh, in, in Canada would be 5 million in the U.S. Yeah. So it's a lot. Yeah. It's a big impact. And also, we don't have the same control over these people as we used to have. As you know, we used to right. have a very tight immigration policy uh, with, with criteria, points allo allocated for skills, mm -hmm. money, et cetera. Now it's this first come, for, first serve. But it's this migration problem, as you know, is a problem for the whole planet. I mean, the whole yes. world is changing. Tens of millions of people are moving. So now the, your government is saying, listen, why don't you uh, force uh, the Mexicans to have a visa to come into Canada uh, so that they cannot come, they cannot move to the U.S. from your country. So the pressure is on us from the Mexicans. As you, you Americans yeah. have lived with this problem for yes. decades now. So we're just getting a, a, a bad taste of there it. There was a very funny little uh, piece written early in the Trump administration. I should have remembered to bring it. I don't know if you saw it, Scott, but it was a satire about the thousands of California liberals who were leaving the country to go to Canada to escape the Trump administration and bringing their bottled water with them and <laughs> sneaking into Saskatchewan across the border. But I'm, glad you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned the Californians and water. This is where we are right now. I mean, we have to deal now with climate change issues and, and, and one will be the, how to allocate the, waters of, the water of North America to all of us, I guess, in, in the years to come. It's becoming, uh, electricity is becoming a problem uh, for us, certainly Canadians. I mean, we, in Quebec, huge problem. How to integrate our electric grids will be a problem because of these, yes. uh, these storms uh, and hopefully the the water issue will, will, be, will be run uh, in a strategic trade way. And it will not send you icebergs, will not send you, will not open a pipeline from the Great Lakes to you, will send you, send you water by the bottle. There's a couple of bad choices there. You're quite right. But, uh, but uh, Quebec and, and Canada were very far-sighted in terms of construction of hydroelectric power that has, uh, in fact, most of New York's, New England's renewables are actually sourced from Quebec Hydro. Yeah, so, no, there's still uh, huge projects between Quebec, of Quebec Hydro, vis-à-vis -vis some uh, northern states, Massachusetts yes. in particular. And uh, you're a great source of aluminum because of that low-cost energy, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. That's what I was going to mention. But the tariffs have been removed. At least we have re been successful in removing the tariffs on, on the steel and aluminum. So yes. hopefully they'll do the same thing on, on lumber. But we'll see. Well, Canada is unusual, and it's one of the few countries that actually produces, I guess you'd say, green aluminum, green. because you, you, know, you use hydropower. Very few other countries do that. Electricity, aluminum, many of the aluminum companies have organized themselves in Quebec because of cheap electricity. Now, yes. suddenly, the Minister of Energy is telling Canadians, Quebecers, that you know there's still a lot of electric power in Quebec, but it's not totally unlimited, and the choices will have to be made. And did you mention a, a case recently of a major foreign company interested to come into Quebec, and they had to tell them, listen, thank God, we'd like to have you, but we 
we won't have enough. So this is very, very new for Quebecers, certainly to, uh, to be told that Mr. Monsieur Fitzgibbon mentioned that. Alors, so it's going to be tighter in the years to come. So are you, do you think that on, on those issues, the, the hydro issues in particular, do you think you've got a good dialogue established with the American government? I, th I think so. You know, uh, from my time in Washington, it's easy when the two countries see eye to eye uh, on what you Americans consider what I call big war and peace issues. I mean, now it's Ukraine. It used to be Vietnam, Iraq. When there's a, a problem, when, when we, we Canadians disagree on, on one of those key issues, then, then access gets a bit more difficult. It, it, but at the moment, it's a bit like a honeymoon. I mean, you know, it was difficult with, with the previous administration. Canada was with Mexico, was forced back to the negotiating table. We didn't like it. We didn't want it. We did it. I guess we got our, a, a good agreement for us, which, which is, and also I think for you, Americans, it's a better agreement than the first one. But I mean, it, it's much easier right now. Much easier. First of all, Democrat and liberal is always easier than a Republican and conservative. Is, this is the ideal. Now we have two leaders sharing the same, essentially the same values, getting along well personally, mm -hmm. not insulting our, our prime minister, a civil and respectful dialogue. So normally when you have that, the trade issues will not be resolved by these guys, but the message goes down the hierarchy that, listen, this is, we might not like it. Maybe we should bend a little bit to accommodate our Canadian friends who are helping us a lot these days on Ukraine. In, for for instance, because this is the big crisis of the day. So on, on that one, a fee, I mean, because the Americans are after us on that, we do our share. Mm -hmm. uh, they complain about our uh, defense budget. We say, okay, we'll try to rectify this. But between, if that friends, uh, colleagues uh, in, a, in a very candid way. I've always struck in Washington how easy it was to deal with Americans. I went from dealing with Americans to dealing with the French. My God, I missed my days in Washington at the time. <laughs> More difficult than the French. The, the current alignment is fortunate for good relations, but I would never take away uh, anything from the Canadian embassy in Washington, which has the most up-to-date and thorough assessment of the relations, commercial relations between the U.S. and Canada on a, on a U.S. congressional district level. Yeah. They're really knowledgeable about where Canada makes a difference for members of Congress, not just along the northern border, but the whole country. And that, I think, is a key investment that Canada made maybe a couple decades ago, and it's built on it, and it pays off every day. It's really impressive. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, Scott, because these close links between our embassy and Congress were established by a mentor of mine, Alan Gottlieb, a long time ago. Maybe the name doesn't say anything oh, to you. Oh, yes. So yeah, Alan is the one who instigated th those connections. And during my time in Washington, a huge section was devoted just to dealing with Congress on our specific issues. Uh, it's always interesting also as a representative of Canada to go into talk to Republicans or Democrats, not, not on the nonpartisan way. Mm -hmm. even, even allowing Canadians to participate in the in the legislative process. You know, here's a draft of what we're planning to do. What do you think? No other country in the world would give us that kind of, uh, of access. So you're right, this is still going on, but, but not only that, that liaison, but the, our embassy in Washington is important, is very carefully staffed. Mm -hmm. We have 10 offices across the US. So it's, we have always put our, our very best in, in Washington to face you guys who are, who are the most powerful and, and, and sometimes yeah. the most difficult. <laughs> Let, let's spend a few minutes on a relationship that's been less less pleasant, and that's China. You're well aware of the differences the United States has with China. Can you say a few words about how the Canadian view about China has evolved and where it stands right now? It has changed a lot uh, very mm -hmm. recently. I guess uh, it started pretty well, easily, with the present government, even the 
with, with the new Trudeau government, when it came into power, was determined to have a good, healthy uh, relationship with China, which is our second trade partner. So uh, it started well, but then it degenerated massively in, in the last years. You know, we had the, the episode of the two Michaels. They interned those, those guys for a couple of years without due process uh, while their uh, citizen was in, in Vancouver li living in the big mansion, uh, the Huawei uh, CFO there. So that kind of polluted the atmosphere. And then uh, we had the attempt to negotiate a trade deal with, with China. It didn't go well. Mr. Trudeau was not very well received. Doesn't have a lot of uh, atom crushy or similarities of views with uh, Xi Jinping. So at, as we speak, it's not, it's, it's bad. And it's very, it's bad because uh, we have aligned our, our, our position far more to your position. I mean, clearly your president is, has made China the, the centerpiece of his war is, is foreign policy, hardening the tone. Sometimes I'm surprised to, to see here Americans talking about China as, a, as an enemy. We're not there yet. There is a strong adversary. There's really not a, but we, I mean, we, we don't see China as yet as an enemy, but we have done things in recent months like trying to influence our elections that is making it very, very hard to deal with China in a normal way. I, I suspect it'll take years for Canada yeah. To, to, to... Yeah, the American people long had suspicions about China's, whether they were a fair trader, and they thought generally they weren't. But if they turned into a menace over the past few years in terms of attitude of the public, and that's, our politicians reflect that. Yeah, they're wolf diplomacy. I mean, they, they, they're no longer on the defensive. They, they really attacked systematically the West. They're developing their military in an incredible way. Their army will be uh, a couple of million, just in, in, in 10 years time, I mean, China will have a, a military equivalent to the American military. So where will that lead? Will those two powers be able to compromise and, and go ahead, get ahead? This is the big question of the day, of course. But I mean, to, to answer your question, well, it's not easy. And for Canada, it's not easy because China is our second main ex um, uh, importer, but also we have uh, up north, uh, Russia. So we have big problems with Russia, big problem with China, with India, it's not great. Uh, thank God we have you guys. <laughs> <laughs> we won't let the Canadians know you said it's that. It's nice to be appreciated. <laughs> we find ourselves in the situation here with China within an equally uh, negative relationship, but actually trade is expanding. Same with us, yeah. same with us. Even though we have those political problems, trade is still expanding. Yeah. Surprise. Well, maybe we should close with a word on, uh, I said we were going to talk about, but let's close with just a word on Ukraine, because I was thinking, here's another, first of all, an area where Canada has a Ukrainian population, big, big as, population. I re, as I recall. In fact, one of my old friends, is, uh, his family is uh, Ukrainian, and they're from Saskatchewan, I believe, originally. Uh, and another area where I think we're cooperating, are we on the same page entirely on Ukraine? Yes, yes, we are. I mean, we're totally. I mean, uh, again, a few words to tell you how uh, we Canadians, uh, the Institute of the Canadian government has appreciated the, the role of, you, of your president on that file. Uh, he has taken the leadership of, of, of NATO, leadership of Western countries, uh, providing billions of dollars of aid. We have been in total sync with you on this. Our, we have a, a minister also, Minister Finance, who used to be our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Christian Fielin, who is of Ukrainian origin. So she was, uh, I'm sure, at the forefront of, the, of our policy on Ukraine. So again, on, on that crucial war and peace issue for your country, we're there. We're there with you. So uh, hopefully, uh, we, we have not finished talking about this. It's going to go on for, for quite some time, but it's not, it's not only Ukraine, it's the whole, the whole business of, uh, of Russia and nuclear proliferation. I mean, uh, when I, I think that uh, in Vienna, the, uh, the uh, nuclear clock is at 20 seconds uh, or to midnight, it, it shows that we're not far away from a, a global catastrophe. 
I'm personally worried about this because I've, I've followed the nuclear part uh, of, of foreign policy for years. As a young diplomat in Paris uh, 50 years ago, I used to deal with this. Uh, to, to know that, uh, the, I mean, we, we, we're not far from a, a mistake by some kind of general... In miscalculation or, or something. Yeah, yes, miscalculation right. that uh, could result in our collective annihilation. Well, in difficult times makes for good friends, so we're glad we have one in uh, in the nation of Canada. So, and, and we have uh, we're two uh, great countries, and when it's going to go bad, think of it. North America, our two countries have everything. You know, we have natural resources, population, geography, oceans. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, the world will not fall apart. But in the meantime, together we can do great things on all kinds of front. That's a, that's a great a great comment to end it on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.